Shemai a Chriso e down with the Patriarchy. Ben Richards Adui. And I'm Elliot Jo. He's as white and Welsh as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to find out more about those marginalised composers we don't know so well. That's right. That was very cool. That was. Week seven. Week seven. This is that bit where we get all excited about the fact that it's week seven. We are very excited that it's week seven and we're very excited. I'm particularly excited because, as you may have noticed from today's introduction, today's no ordinary episode. What is that strange foreign language Ben was speaking? I hear you ask. It wasn't <laughs> a foreign language at all. It was actually a language older than English. It was Welsh because today... Well, not today, but today for you is St. David's Day. So happy St. David's Day. Dithgo Dewi Sant Hapis, as we say in Wales. Now, of course, I suppose that's the thing is that people don't realise that I'm actually Welsh. I know, you don't sound hugely Welsh. No. Um, there's and, the occasional word that sounds a bit Welsh, but... Yeah, and when Annie says he's as white and Welsh as they come, it's not really true. I do apologise to all those people who can actually, you know, speak Welsh and actually live in Wales most of the year. Um and I'm from Pembrokeshire and people from Wales often think that people from Pembrokeshire aren't really Welsh anyway. Um, <laughs> but we are. And I've got daffodils on my windowsill. Aww. And on Monday, not today because today's Saturday, but on Monday, I'll be wearing my red rugby top. I mean, actually, I should be wearing it today because as future people will know, Wales and England played today in the rugby and someone won. So, ah, uh, what a shame or woohoo, whichever one. <laughs> uh, should, but... should, I, should I cut it out depending on which one's which? <laughs> I don't know, maybe leave both in. I'm not okay. sure. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> no spoilers. Anyway, today's episode is on a very special female Welsh composer by the name of Morvith Owen. And like Lily Boulanger a couple of weeks ago, Morvith has a very short life, a very tragic end. And actually, pretty much the same time, more or less, as Lily Boulanger, that kind of late 19th century, early 20th century. So as per Every week, we're now on seven weeks, we now have an order of doing things. I'm going to talk a little bit about her life, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of her music. And I'm looking forward to this one. This has been quite, I think this is probably my favourite one so far, but then I'm biased. Because I'm <laughs> so. Ben was very, very, very excited to do this one. He came yeah. up with a very clever idea to do a Welsh composer for St David's Day, and he's very chuffed, so I hope you will enjoy it. Well, the thing is, is that I was just like, oh, my God, it's March the 1st on Monday. I was like, we've got to do this. So I'm sure you're all gagging to hear about her. Absolutely. Margaret Owen was born in 1891, the 1st of October, 1891. That's my in... dad's birthday, but, but not, really? not, not 1881. We can talk about your dad at some point on this podcast because like, he fits the Petrobachi remix. So that's He great. does, definitely. He does. So 1st of October, 1891 in Trevorest in Glamorgan, which is sort of South Wales, the Valleys area. For those people whose only um, knowledge of Wales is Gavin and Stacey, Glamorgan's probably about a half an hour, 45-minute drive from Barry. Okay. Um, I think for English people, that's probably a good place to mark here. That's Absolutely. Where that's very good <laughs> for us lay people. So, Morvith was a bit of a child prodigy, unsurprisingly, and she started to learn the piano at the age of four, and she started composing at the age of six. Oh, my God. Gosh. So, yeah. And the thing is to say about Wales here is that there's a really strong tradition in Wales of performing and attending competitions, which I don't think really exists 
in the UK uh, sort of at large in the same way. We have these festivals called Eisteddfods, uh, Eisteddfodau. There's a national Eisteddfod which takes place in, in a week in August. And basically it's, it's this huge festival of culture and art. And there are competitions for poetry. There's competitions for composition, for performance. And there's uh, folk dancing and there's so many different things. And Marvel, there's no exception in this case. She went through that Eisteddfod training and went and performed at, at various competitions in Wales. But interestingly, she was pretty good at the piano. She was a dab hand at the piano. She was born in 1891 and in 1911, she performed the Grieg Piano Concerto. So that's, that's yeah, that's very impressive. I mean, yeah. I, I I tried to learn it, and I think I got to the, the second octave, and my my hands said no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty impressive stuff. So impressive. After learning to compose at a very young age, she then went on to study at the University College Cardiff with David Evans, and she went there between 1909 and 1912. And the Liberal MP Elliot Crochet Williams. He recognised her talent and he suggested to Malfred and her parents that she should really go and do some more study after her time in Wales. So she then went on to study at the Royal Academy of Music with Frederick Corder for five years from 1912 to 1917. So she spent those First World War years in London. And I think this is where her interesting life starts to begin. Because when we think of, you know, we were talking about um, Germaine Taillefer in 1920s Paris, we picture this kind of bohemian world of mm. artists sort of mingling and stuff. And actually, yeah. Morvid, uh existed in similar circles in London. There were two groups that she was part of. One was the, the Welsh Presbyterian Church, which is in Charing Cross, um, which is no longer, it's still there, it's, the building's still there, but it's no longer used as a church. Mm. And that was her link to home. And so she moved in the influential London Welsh circles of the time. But she also was part of the Hampstead set, and would frequently take picnics on Hampstead Heath in huge hats and elegant dresses. And oh, it, I saw so many lovely pictures of her in huge hats. And, oh. and it must be said that everything I've read about her is talking about her sort of almost movie star quality mm. appearance. You know, she's got this very striking appearance. It's almost like a Monet painting, imagining these these elegant ladies dressed in big hats and long dresses on the on the heath. You know, having Definitely. a having a so that was her life there and she lived in Hampstead with her friend Elizabeth Lloyd in a flat up there for a couple of years and while she was in Hampstead among the people that she befriended was Prince Felix Yusupov who was Rasputin's assassin oh my gosh so there was actually a time when she was planning to go to Russia and spend some time learning about the folk songs of Russia and that was partly to do with the relationship she had with a Russian psychiatry student but the Great War, the First World War kind of got in the way of that. And so she stayed in London and continued to, to study at the Royal Academy mm -hmm. of Music. And then it sort of gets a bit weird because in 1917, she marries Ernest Jones, who was Freud's psychoanalyst. This is a weird one because she got married in Marylebone in a registry office to Ernest Jones and none of her friends or her family attended. Right. And her compositional career was taking off at this point. She'd also started performing as a singer. She'd made her concert debut in the same year. Then when she married Ernest Jones, she became his secretary and his proofreader and he didn't approve of her performing in public. And so her 
diary of concerts engagements dwindled and her compositions didn't dry up but they certainly depleted in their regularity and number all through marrying this guy that's a yeah. bit strange yeah it is a bit strange she actually wrote to Elliot Crochet Williams the MP who encouraged her to study at RAM and said married life doesn't seem to me to be quite the easiest thing to adapt oneself to and has taken up all my time so it's an interesting one that this is actually in the last year, 18 months of her life, she marries Dennis Jones and her life takes a bit of a turn in a weird way mm. and, and a sort of unexplained one as well. You know, the, the weirdness of her family and friends not being at, at the wedding. And, and I think her friends were slightly bemused at her choice of, of partner. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that he was obviously quite controlling and obviously being a psychoanalyst of Freud, probably a bit off the wall as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's a very, very odd one. But, you know, she before all of that, you know, she had this really wonderful, vivacious, bohemian lifestyle. She moved in political circles. David Lloyd George, who at the time was war minister, I think asked her to perform at the Gaman Bagani, the singing festival at the start of the Nationalized Sedbod in 1916. So she had fingers and lots of pies in terms of knowing all the right people and lived this glamorous, bohemian life and lifestyle in London. But then it all came crashing down in September 1918. That's such a shame. Um, such a kind of promise. Such promise. She went home and had an appendectomy at home in the mumble. She'd had it at home, even though there was a hospital very nearby. And there's lots of weird things. I'm referring to an article here by Rianne Davis, who's written a wonderful book that I haven't been able to get hold of. I'm told it's a wonderful book all on Maud with Owen's life. And there are some weird questions here about her death. Why was the operation carried out in the house rather than in the hospital mm. down the road? There was no post-mortem and she was buried without a death certificate. So there's weird things going on at the end of her life. There's weird things going on in her marriage. There's weird things going on in her death eventually from horrible appendicitis. And like you say, it's a real shame. And it's a real question of what if. What if Marjorie Owen had lived to the same age like when Lily Boulanger died, if she'd have lived to the same age as Nadia, you know? Mm. These are really interesting questions to ponder. But... I think she left about 180 compositions. She already had a pretty comprehensive catalogue of, of music that she composed by the time that she died. I mean, if uh, you start composing when you're six, I don't suppose it really matters. No, that's true. Gosh, uh, you must just have such an enormous collection of work. Yeah, and of course, she was studying 1912 to 1917. I think it's very easy for us to think you go to university and then you leave at 21. But I mean, you know, she was there until 25. She was still working hard and composing. So fascinating and brief life mm. but her music is absolutely wonderful uh, two works i want to focus on one orchestra and one vocal the nocturne in d flat major this was premiered at the queen's hall in london in 1913 and mm. was lauded at the time it went down rather well how um, old was she when she composed oh gosh so she would have been about what 20 22 something like that 21 22 so around about our age now mm. is, is when she was writing this it's a 15 minute or so, 13 to 15 minute piece of music. And having had a listen to it with the score, you have this opening extended introduction, which is very dreamlike. Mm. It's quite impressionistic. My thinking on this is, well, if this is a nocturne, then it sounds like we're telling some story of the night here. And you get inferences of the final bird calls of daylight descending into the evening. Perhaps we're descending into some kind of dream state. That's kind of the feel here. Yeah. You're not quite sure. You're this sort of a an uncertainty to where the music's going. It's sparse, full of mystery. It's Pardon funny me. because you were actually just comparing her and her friends all in their big hats and big dresses to a yeah. Monet painting 
And the music is very like a Monet painting too, and it leaves quite a lot to the imagination. It just reminds me of that. Yeah, and part of me thinking this sounds a bit like we're in an enchanted forest, mm. probably in Wales, you know. And that, <laughs> but it, certainly there's this: where are we? What are we doing? But then, out of that comes a theme that feels like oh, Tchaikovsky's turned up now, and all of a sudden we've got what feels like a love theme. I'm imagining a moonlit scene atop a mountain or something, you know, two two passionate lovers who are sharing this moment or something. This this gorgeous, soaring romantic melody which moves between the strings and into the woodwind to great effect. It's a melody that feels I've written here, it feels like it can conquer anything. There's a sort of determination to it, but there's also mm. this real romantic heft at the same time absolutely gorgeous stunning in terms of the compositions that i've enjoyed for this podcast it's really pushing the Coleridge taylor ballad that we looked at a few weeks ago yes. it's really pushing it in terms of which one i prefer then complete contrast we've got this weird offbeat string thing with some jumpy and sprightly clarinet movements almost like now our characters in this story are running through this forest you know or they're going on an explore you know it's kind oh, of can i just say i i really hope that you said all of that in your dissertation that you managed to find a way of saying some weird offbeat weird string stuff and the characters running and I hope you managed to fit that in your desk somewhere. Unfortunately, I don't think that kind of counts as academic writing, but nevertheless. <laughs> one thing that struck me here as well, though, is we were talking about Marla a couple of weeks ago and about how you know when you're listening to Marla, mm. but her woodwind writing does have a Marlerian quality to it. I think it's giving it its prominence and allowing the woodwinds to speak in a more prominent way than perhaps they would have done earlier in the Romantic period. Mm. And then we get a return of the noble theme that comes again. And then it adds then this, there's a sort of building tension and these big chords are happening offbeat. And we're not quite sure where the music's going. And you're like, are we in a dream? Are we waking up? What's going on here? It's a weird one. And what's particularly weird about it is that with music like this, if Tchaikovsky had written this, he would return to this theme at the end and he'd make it part of a grand finale to the piece. Mm. But Owen doesn't do that. She then goes back to the offbeat, sprightly, let's go on and explore theme. And then you're sort of thinking, where the hell are we going? What's going on here? And then it all starts to gradually slow down. And then you get this in the clarinets, a sort of rising line, and then all of a sudden we sit onto a gorgeous chromatic resolution onto a major chord with the classic dreamlike harp glissandi going up and down. And then we just rest on this plateau and you think maybe this is somebody gently waking from a slumber mm. or maybe it's the first peak of the sun over the horizon in the morning, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that piece is absolutely wonderful it sounds um, absolutely gorgeous it does remind me a little bit of the Thai fair that we looked at before and the Coral taylor and it's wonderful but then choral not choral music so much but vocal music solo, voice, songs. Yeah, solo songs there's a really good album by ellen manahan thomas i've who, been listening to that all morning i yeah. absolutely love it it's good isn't it it's fantastic so Ellen Manahan-Thomas, for those of you who don't know, probably most famous now for Eternal Source of Light Divine at the wedding of Harry Meghan back mm. in 2018. That's probably what she's most well known for. But she's an absolutely stonking Welsh soprano that's sung with uh, God knows how many choirs over the years. And she's done an entire album of music by Modifus Owen with uh, the name of the accompanist escapes me at this um, point. It is Brian Ellsbury. 
Brian Ellsbury, because he's not really just accompanist on this, because there's a lot of... Um, a lot of solo piano stuff, too. a lot of solo piano stuff, too. But the particular piece of music I wanted to talk about from a, from a vocal perspective was her setting of the Welsh hymn, Gwer the Apachadir, The Sinner's Prayer. This is a piece that just reinforces to me this uncanny ability that Welsh composers and Welsh hymn writers have for just gut-wrenching melodies. Mm. And particularly melodies in the minor key. There is nothing that the Welsh do better, in my opinion, than a minor key hymn. There's something in the Welsh persona, there's a sense of sorrow and I'm not even sure where it comes from I'm not sure where that springs from but there's a sense of weight and a heaviness and also a willingness to in quite an un un-British way to wear one's heart on one's sleeve mm. and that comes out in in positive passion in our rugby but then it comes out in sorrow when you listen to some of this music and this piece just has completely taken me and I absolutely adore it and the words are talking basically about confessing your sins to God and it is stirring stirring stuff and it's very straightforward ABA structure but the second when the A returns second time in the soprano key that it's in you're going up to a top A flat and it's just full of dagger strikes you know the sort of pain that's going on here and it's just it's just wonderful. And it's the first piece of music from this course that I've decided that I'm going to be performing. So I've got in touch with Oriana Publications, who um, this isn't an advert. Uh, we're not sponsored by anybody. <laughs> but I'm here just to big up this publishing house in Wales because they do a fabulous job. Chris Painter, who's also a composer who runs Oriana, has done a lot of work on Modvid Owen and lots of other marginalised Welsh composers and has published so many of her works. And I was able to access the Nocturne last night on a digital copy from his website. And I emailed him the other day and I said, I would love to perform Gwedia Pachadir in my May recital for Holloway, but I'm a bass and with the best one in the world, this isn't going to work for me. And I said, <laughs> is there any way in which we can transpose it into an into a different key? And so he's currently busy working on that to get that into the, the lower key. Interestingly enough, there's a recording of this on YouTube by the Welsh contralto Helen Watts from, I think it's from 1959 in a lower key. But the interesting thing about Helen Watts is that Helen Watts went to my school at home. Did she? Um, yeah, when it was, well, it was Tasker Mildred when I was there, but it was Tasker School for Girls when, when she went there. And actually, interestingly, again, is that she revisited the school for a television programme during the 80s, during which time my mum was there. So there's all these links. Everyone in Wales knows everybody else. So this piece of music, go and listen to it. Go and listen to the album. You, you can just sit with it in the car, sit with it anywhere, and it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. I must say from this album, I love the setting of the lamb. Yeah. So I haven't heard any other or sung any other setting of the lamb other than the taverner, yeah. which we all know and I love. A lot of people don't, but I absolutely love it. Hmm. And it was really strange. I thought this is going to be the lamb. This is going to be the text of the lamb. But because I'd never heard any other version of it, and this is such a contrasting version, the taverner is so haunting and creepy and a bit distorted but this is so pretty and beautiful and it just carries you away to some time in spring and yeah. I absolutely love it and it completely for me transformed the meaning of the text and I would give that a listen I think it's brilliant I was actually chatting with James about my feelings towards this wonderful lady 
And I think that she's a much better version of Michael Head, who wrote a song called Sweet Charms, which I, I hate. Sorry. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate it. And it was the first thing that I ever sang in a singing lesson. And James just did it in his recital. And I, I can't stand it. And I was listening to it and I was like, this is what he was trying to do, but mm. never did. And it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Well, there's that song on the end of the album, The Land of Hushabye, which is, I suppose, more commercial at the time, more music hall sound. Mm. Um, but again, sort of Ivan Novello-esque and very well crafted. But then she's able to produce the, the Nocturne and there's excerpts of cantatas and things that were written as well. And then all these wonderful songs, some of which are in Welsh, but many of which, she, unusually for a composer of, in Wales at the time, she wrote in English. I mean, I don't think that's the English-Welsh thing isn't necessarily a barrier to enjoying good music because we enjoy music from all languages. But I think it, it's nice that there's a combination of the two, isn't there? Yeah, I really liked that. I was just listening to them and I thought, this isn't French. What on earth is this? And then, alas, it's Welsh because she's a Welsh composer. And yeah. I must say that was that was quite an embarrassing moment for me. Um, well, given that you've already sung and recorded in Welsh as well. We'll skip over that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I love her. This album was the first thing that I listened to, actually. And I just loved it. Obviously, the album starts with a piece called Spring. Yeah. Which, given the time of year that we're in and what a gorgeous warm day it is today. Or yeah. at least it is in sunny Egham. It is here um, as well. There's, there's the, the sky's blue for the first time in ages. It's wonderful. It just transported me away to some kind of enchanted forest where there are lovely lambs jumping around and bunnies everywhere. It made me feel like Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> it was it's lovely. I feel like we've landed on Morizone at the perfect time. You know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that we've all had a pretty miserable winter. And I think now we're finally coming out of that. We're starting to come into spring and, you know, there's there's good news on the horizon and there's reasons to be hopeful. And, and a lot of this music puts you in that frame of mind. Exactly. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Martha though, and I'm going to swipe right. Wonderful. Go and go and look online at her. Go and read Rianne Davis's blog post on her. It's actually on a website called illuminatewomensmusic.co.uk. So I feel Ooh, like that sounds probably, right up our street. It's a great place to go, and it's a good long read there on her life, and she's gone into great detail. And there's not a huge amount about her online, but you can go and look at scores. You can you buy scores from Oriana and download them as PDFs. You know, you don't have to necessarily pay and have them delivered. You can have them immediately at your fingertips if you want them. Mm. There's not there's not a lot of recorded stuff, but the Ellen Manahan Thomas CD is out there. There's recordings right. by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales of her of work that have been done sort of on radio and things. You can find them on YouTube. Yeah, if you look for it, you'll be able to find it. Yeah, and actually, that's I think the thing that's that we've been taught by doing this podcast is that if you look for it, you'll find it. Exactly. I think we're very comfortable in our little bubbles of who we want to listen to. Ben and I were actually in a call with some very important people in classical music who we're hopefully going to be chatting to in the future on the podcast. We may well um, be, yes. Oh, and they were talking all about how we're just so comfortable with the composers we listen to. Mm. And obviously it was Beethoven 250 last year. But the world didn't need to hear more Beethoven for an entire year. And we got talking about how important it is to just step up your comfort zone within music. Just to yeah. have a listen elsewhere. So hopefully we're doing that. But actually, I was just going to say, on her Spotify page, obviously, it's not her profile. That just seems silly because she's, she doesn't have an artist page because she's not really alive. It's not like she manages it. <laughs> but she only has on one of them. There are two. One of them, she's got 96 monthly listeners. And one of them, she's got 38. 
And you compare that to Nadia Boulanger, she's got 95,000 monthly listeners. Wow. It's bizarre. People are comfortable in what they're comfortable in. So I hope this episode has shone a light on someone who you probably have never heard of. And Nadia Boulanger is not even close to being the most well-known person that you could have looked at for that statistic. And I think would we have heard about her more had she have lived longer? Maybe, maybe would have done. But I think actually... Welsh composers often don't get the spotlight they deserve. I mean, I mean, Ellie, if I was to ask you to name a Welsh composer, what would be your first reaction? If you could see me right now, my eyes doubled in size. <laughs> Is that I just... Mm. Well, I mean, the obvious one's probably Carl Jenkins. Oh, my gosh. Is he Welsh? Yes. He's American. Um, Carl Jenkins. And then you've got people like William Mathias. Yes. Um, and then um, Paul Miller's Welsh. Is he? Yes. All these people I didn't know Welsh. And Ivan Avello was Welsh, actually, as well. So there's, oh. quite, there's quite a lot. I think part of it is often that you don't even realise that they are Welsh. No, definitely not. Actually, we, we, were, we were watching a programme on the BBC last night, which was basically a compilation of Top of the Pops, uh, of all of them were Welsh artists. And every time a new one came on, my dad went, Oh, I didn't know they were from Wales. <laughs> um, so, you know, actually, sometimes you don't really know who these people are. But, I mean, I did some work on Grace Williams, who was a composer. She died in the 1970s. I sang some of her work a couple of years ago in a concert designed to bring her music to the forefront. And I played bits of her trumpet concerto. So there is work being done, but it's slow work. And I think I'd love to, at some point, revisit some other composers from Wales and on here. Because I think there are definitely some treasures to be uncovered, for sure. The thing is, obviously, that this podcast is about shining a light on people who haven't been able to have it shone on them. And obviously, we want to focus particularly on women and people of colour. But at the same time, you start to realise that there are barriers to people's exposure beyond even those channels as well um, and I think you know if we in our small little way we can do something to give these composers alive or dead a bit of a nudge then I think that's that's that's, that's all we can do that's all we can do so are you swiping right Ellie I'm absolutely swiping right I love it I would love to sing some of it yes. I really like it it's very high up and floaty and that's all I can do yeah so let's give that a go <laughs> <laughs> definitely so yes thank you for listening to today's special Diolchenbaud, as we would say, and normal... Can I say something in Welsh, Ben? Yeah, so Diolch... Diolch... Un... Un... Fawr... Oh, no. Fawr... Yeah, that's... Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Or, to be be crudely translated, thank you in big. (laughs) Yeah, Diolch... Thank you in big, everyone. Also, listeners, do not forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Yep. Go over, head over to Apple Music and give us five big stars because I recently found out that we're on Apple Music and if you could give us a rating, that would be fab. So far, we've got a couple of five-star ratings, I think. Have we? So if we could get... Oh, we have, Ben, we have. Was that you? No. Well, um, I don't think so. Although I do listen to it on Apple Podcasts, but I don't think it was me. I, I don't know. Maybe It might have just been our parents, but anyway... let's pretend that we're we're really popular so go and give us some five star rating because if you rate it highly then it gets rated highly in in lists of things and then our podcast spreads far and wide and more people get to listen to us ramble about composers who we're passionate about yeah exactly so if you like us then please you know give us a hand in that respect follow us on Instagram at Patriarchy Pod, Patriarchy Pod. That's the one, Patriarchy Pod. Um, we don't have Twitter, but I, I, I post about the, the podcast in a personal capacity on Twitter at Bach421Ben. 
Um, don't ask about my name. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it's a long story. Uh, it's an, an embarrassing one as well. We'll put in an outtake at some point. Um, but yeah, that's please find us there. And thank you all for your support so far, whoever you are. And thank you for those of you that have messaged us and, and said that you're enjoying it. Uh, it really means a lot. I appreciate it. I don't think either Ellie or I thought this would have gone quite as well as it has done so far. So No, absolutely not. I think we were expecting, as we always joke about, the odd four listens. And we'd be lucky with that. Yeah. See you next week when we don't know what we're doing, but we'll be doing something fun. We will. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening, guys, and we will see you next week. Take care. Bye.